Welcome to the Carl Vibe Show. We are live on YouTube, uh, Twitter, and also Facebook. I'm really excited about my show tonight. I've got a really awesome guest. Uh, we just met over on the Blind Frog Ranch Outpost uh, Season 2 recap show. Uh, John Casey, what an awesome guy. We were able to exchange numbers and we've been chatting back and forth and talking about things and the amount of uh, stuff that we have in common is so huge and so fascinating and interesting. I was like, we've got to just do another show. So um, I got to have you on my show where we don't have like a time limit or any rules about what we need to talk about or any limitations like that and get all of his uh, experiences and stories. But you might know John Casey from the, the hit show, Lost Gold of World War II. Uh, ever since he was a little kid, he's been obsessed with a massive lost treasure somewhere in the mountains of the Philippines. Yamashita's lost gold is out there somewhere underground, hidden in some tunnels or caverns, and John Casey has been hot on the trail, and he's also involved in a bunch of other really fascinating projects. He got involved doing it just at the level of doing a construction and engineering work and we're going to hear his entire story of how he's encountered things that have changed his entire concept of history and have been an entire paradigm shift for him and his purpose in life so without uh waiting any longer let's go ahead and bring john casey aboard how are you doing john i'm doing well carl thank you for having me really appreciate that i really enjoyed it our uh our conversation about blind frog the other night was pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah, definitely. That's such an interesting place up there in the Uinta Basin. And uh, you're able to con confirm that you relate to that show when you watch it is what we were able to talk about and stuff over there on the other podcasts. Uh, because you've been doing like treasure hunting and crawling in caves and swimming underwater and looking at treasure maps your entire life. And uh, to the point that you wound up, on television and now you're involved in all kinds of stuff and so we're going to be covering a lot of ground with you tonight and so let's go ahead and start at the beginning john when you uh when you were little how did you get involved as a kid in all of this interesting stuff well i started uh, actually you know pretty innocently i was at a family reunion and my cousin frank had come to the reunion he's uh, pretty world class uh and when I was 14, 15, he was out di um, diamond mining and gold panning and metal detecting. And uh, he's a world-class hunter. So he was out all over the world just picking up cool rock specimens and gold and come home with diamonds, all kinds of stuff. Uh, at this particular family reunion, he showed up with a bunch of you know two and three and four ounce gold nuggets in his hand and showing them off. And of course, you know, being a kid and being excited about gold nuggets, I guess. Uh, it was the first time I ever actually seen a gold nugget before. And, you know, I was pretty excited. He's telling me the story about the bears and, you know, the location. It was about 30 miles north of the Arctic Circle up in Alaska. And, you know, I wanted to go, you know. So he said, look, you can save your money and I'll take you with me next year. And when I turned 15 or 16, I don't recall which, but that next summer I saved up enough money to go and you know, being a greenhorn kind of newbie guy, didn't know nothing from nothing. But, you know, he uh, showed me how to use a metal detector and I went off and out into the middle of nowhere to find gold nuggets. And I did pretty horrible. First couple of days, I couldn't find anything. 
But, when, you, uh, but when you're a kid, you're like, there's gold. You're like tenacity, man. And those metal detectors, <laughs> it might as well be a lightsaber, a magic wand running around out there. Like, how exciting. What it was awesome. Time. And, uh, you know, you're, you know, again, you're about 30 miles north of the Arctic Circle in the middle of nowhere land in Alaska. Tons of mosquitoes and lots of bears and a couple of wolves around. And, you know, you're just kind of taking in all the experience as a 16-year-old kid. Uh, you know, Frank was already a little older. Uh, he's probably 20 years older than me, at least, uh, maybe 30, because he's in his 80s now, and I'm in my 50s. So, uh, you know, he had a lot of experience, and, you know, we used to go up and go fishing and do the salmon fishing up there as well. So uh, besides the gold thing, I got really excited about just hunting the gold, and, you know, it's, the nice thing about it was, you know, these guys are mostly older, so Frank was probably in his uh, – you know, at least his late 40s when we were going. And, you know, they had a kind of a schedule, but it's 24 hours of daylight. And I'm 16 years old. So like 20 hours of metal detecting a day was like right up my alley. And, you know, after a while it paid off because you know, I was able to pull up a couple of big nuggets and um, successively every year thereafter for 15 years, we would go back to Alaska and continue hunting nuggets and dredging and just doing all kinds of crazy and fun stuff. But I amassed a lot of gold back then. And, you know, when the shows came out about, um, you know, the gold digging shows on TV, Bering Sea Gold, we had already been dredging up near the Bering Sea and outside of Nome, you know, for shit, 10 years before the show even started. Wow. And there were, um, you know, the Klondike Gold Rush shows and all that. And I'm, you know, seeing the gold that they're getting as flowery little stuff that looks like sparkles. And I'm just laughing because I'm like, that, that ain't a gold nugget. These are gold nuggets. But, uh, you know, I just thought that they were pulling your leg on the show that, you know, they weren't getting any nuggets. But I guess, you know, they were going after that found, uh, fine flower stuff and it was working for them. So God bless them. But, um, yeah. Yeah, it was just pretty incredible to have that start overall. And, you know, I was in construction most of my life in the beginning half of my life. So it afforded me the money and the time, you know, to take off and go out and do these things with him. Uh, and over the years, it had just kept evolving, kept evolving until I moved to Florida. I kind of semi-retired in 99 and came down here and tried to figure out, okay, what am I going to do next? they were having a lot of sinkhole problems down here. So I decided, you know, that I would try to help these homeowners by detecting the sinkholes so that they wouldn't buy these houses and then basically be stuck holding the bag after the fact. So I worked a bunch of years looking to, you know, try to fix this problem and try to get the government and or the real estate agents to hire me to scan the properties with radar to make sure there was no sinkholes and it was safe for their clients. Uh, and that eventually did come into play into Florida years later. But over the course of that time, using various pieces of equipment, the equipment uh, for showing a void space and or showing um, like water filled void, the color variations in the bands uh, for the graphics were so close that you really couldn't tell them apart. So I worked with the manufacturers trying to tweak the software so it showed a true void excuse me, as opposed to a water-filled void. And in doing so, I knew the software pretty much better than most people at that point. So the company started farming me out to their people who bought radar equipment and or EM equipment um, to, to train them. And normally what would happen is people would come and buy a piece of equipment, get two hours of training, and then head off to some foreign country and try to use it. 
and two hours uh, to maybe set up the equipment might be okay, but to read data from that type of equipment is near impossible. Um, so they would send me out to these locations to not only run the equipment or supposedly, you know, under the guise of teaching these people how to use it. And ultimately, you know, I turned just turned into the guy that was going to use their equipment to help them find whatever it was that they were looking for. And, you know, so I, kind of my birth into treasure hunting on a bigger scale because these guys weren't out there just hunting a couple coins on the beach. They're hunting historic treasures or huge, massive lost treasures of gold and silver coming off shipwrecks or stolen by the Japanese or stolen by all kinds of people, the Turks and the Romans and the Greeks. I mean, there's just no shortage of treasure in all these locations. And thankfully, I mean, I was able to help them retrieve some of these treasures and see them come out of the ground, which was really intriguing because, you know, then you realize like, oh, okay, I do know how to use this equipment properly. And these people are seeing good results. And, right. you know, it's just unfortunate that some of the amazing things that have come out of the ground don't get shared with the world. If you got a glimpse at these things with your own two eyes, you know, you'd be a believer. And, you know, for all the years that I wasn't a believer in many different facets of things that are buried in the underground, once you actually see it, then you're like, oh, you know, now it's in your own mind kind of rocking your belief system because you're taught certain things don't exist or they shouldn't belong here. And then you see it with your own eyes and you, you've pulled that data, you've recovered that item, and now you know, you're kind of lost. You got to, it goes against all your mainstream thinking and teachings and slowly, you know, all of these different things just changed my whole belief system about life and what life was supposed to be uh, kind of growing up. It was more like, um, you know, I need to get married and have, you know, 2.3 kids and a house. And this was yeah. the American dream. Well, that dream slowly dissipated and disappeared when I turned like 25 or 26, I had pretty much, all of those things that people wanted so dearly out of life and I scratched my head like, well, this can't be it. Now, what do I do? <laughs> you know, it's uh, I pretty much accomplished what everybody says is the, you know, the way to go or what's what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Um, so after succeeding through that and just bas basically standing in my driveway one night, a snowy night when it was uh, like a full moon and it was big clouds of, clumpy snow coming down. It looked like cotton balls and kind of orange glow. And I, you know, talked, spoke out to the heavens and said, okay, well, if you need me to take me tomorrow, you know, I'm ready to go because I've pretty much finished everything. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of had to reinvent where my path was supposed to go forward from there. And then, as I said, it's once you start seeing items and artifacts that just you know, rock your mind and don't belong here, you really start to take a different hard look at what you've been taught as opposed to what's out there and what the real meaning is about life in general and about right. what it means to be alive and human and what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, because you've That's uncovered uh, ever since. <laughs> you've so. come across some things that have been pretty unexpected uh, while you were looking for one thing, you come across something else or vice versa. Um, we got a couple of questions here before we get to that, because I, I want to jump down the rabbit hole with you on that here in just a minute. Really? But uh, we got a couple of questions, one from Abraham asking, uh, or Abram, how much would you say was all that gold altogether? What was the largest gold items that you 
found, I, I'm guessing they're referring to your time up into up in Alaska. Uh, in Alaska, the most I ever found in like a three weeks time frame was a little over 10 ounces of individual nuggets. So, I mean, we would, you know, as a team, when Frank and I would go out and like dredge in the creek, you know, we'd spend a couple weeks dredging and we'd split whatever comes out of the dredge. And, you know, just because you're splitting it or, you know, you could, there was, there would be years where we would dredge all summer long and, you know, not even pull an ounce of gold to split between two of us. You know, there was other times that we would hit the river and uh, this particular river was called Gold Run. Uh, it was up halfway between Noam and Teller. Uh, and this gentleman started the mine in 1906, and they pulled uh, 236,000 ounces of gold out of that place back then. So, you know, they had built a dredge up on the property of this river, and it was one of those giant dredges like Tony Beats has on uh, Gold Rush. And they mined about two miles of this river, but every time it came to an S corner, it missed these chunks of land down there that left these like pie shaped pieces that it, the buckets couldn't get to. And every once in a while, we'd get lucky and hit one of the top of those. And literally in the size of a picnic table area, you could pull, you know, 15 ounces of gold out. But you know, the next day you may not see another piece of pie like that or ever for another couple months or years. So, yeah. Yeah. This is quite a while back though, before, like, like you said, before the TV shows and all these big operations went up there, makes you wonder if they're like hiding the real stuff and just showing you the little flakes, you know, cause they don't want to draw too much attention. Like some of mm-hmm. that movie TV magic stuff that goes on and, and they're kind of keeping the lion's share secret or if it's really like, they don't really know what they're doing because <laughs> you know where you're going and what you're doing. And you've been finding like actual big chunks and nuggets that are notable, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's just made me think like they were all lying because I'm like, how can that be? How can I be holding this you know, three ounce nugget or four ounce or whatever nugget in my hand? And that's all the pieces of gold that I have. You know, there, I do have some fines and flakes that came out of the dredge. Sure. But the most of the gold you could pick up, you know, what we call pickers, you know, like the size of little match heads and, and up, you know, so everything was bigger than everything I would see in those jars on TV. And I was just like, they've got to be some nuggets in there somewhere. You know, they are stripping out old creek beds and old bottoms of creeks that were on bedrock. So you know, right. I feel like there's got to be a nu- one nugget in there somewhere. <laughs> but uh, right. yeah, maybe they hide it from us. You know? I feel bad for them because people think that working with TV is a glorious thing, but it's very hard to get any work done. There's so many different shots and different angles and different, you know, there's only uh, one or two cameramen and you got five people working on the site, you know, and they want to see reactions from five different people's faces. You end up, you know, like kind of doing everything two or three times, you know, so that they can get all the angles and shots. And that takes a lot of time to do, you know, yeah. and you don't get a whole lot of work done. <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah. And they want to so, capture a particular moment. And so they're like, okay, we got to, you got to get out of the car and set up the cameras and then drive back. And then, cause they want to film you coming up the road and going around the turn. And so everything like what would normally in reality take 30 seconds ends up taking a half hour, 30 mm-hmm. minutes, you know, it, right. it's pretty wild when you get on a film set like that and you're familiar. So, I mean, you've been on uh, that television you show yourself, you know, 
lost gold of World War II, looking for that missing gold uh, over in the Philippines. But so you've seen weird stuff in the ground that's misplaced way before your involvement with the TV show, right? Or is that did that come after the television show? No, yeah, I seen you know as I saw these gold nuggets coming out, and then you know further on into my career working for individuals, you know, out in Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah, Colorado, um, Alaska. Michigan, Illinois, I mean, just all over the United States, there's all kinds of lost treasures that people go after. Some of them are folklore, some of them, you know, people know somebody who, uh, whose grandfather or great grandfather talks about these stories, and they've been handed down over time. You know, these people are still sitting on these properties where some of these amazing things like Skinwalker or Blind Frog, where, you know, anomalous type of activities happening and no one can understand or you know put a finger on it so uh they believe that there's this buried there some gold or some history or some answer to a, a distant past or a different different civilization that even coexisted here that's just not even in our history books so right so you got involved because you were doing construction and you were also doing you know treasure digging gold digging and stuff like that looking around and then so just naturally you uh had the connections to where when they needed somebody that could go help work on the site uh, you were one of the guys that they would call and be like you gotta come help us with this so what what was one of the uh first of all like your biggest like aha wow this is real like real treasure moments where something significant came out that was uh historical or fascinating to you yeah i think that the biggest aha moment you know besides all these treasures that would come out gold items silver items uh different types of dory bars from out west you know it, it gave indication that the spanish were there they were mining these locations they had these places that they would store the gold and uh it was like you know different stop-offs so they'd bring the gold like 100 feet or excuse me 100 hundred miles, you know, and put it into this cave system and wait for the next group of burrows to come up and get it. And it would take it another hundred miles until eventually it got to its location. And if someone got killed in the meantime, you know, or some, somehow the, the group didn't get back to that storage house to move it to its next location. And that's where it sat until these, uh, you know, intrepid guys who did the history and the homework figured out that there were these storage areas and that they could access if they could find it, they could access possibly gold that was left there, you know, in the past. And that had happened a bunch of times. Um, and even uh, Mr. Martin Flagg, who was on the first show, you know, he's been studying Spanish and Jesuit signs and symbols his whole life. And for the most part, he lived off the land, per se, of his finds here and there for 30 years. So, you know, if you want to learn about what to look for and where to go and, you know, uh, what the methods were that the Spanish were using. And again, we had talked about this on the show last time, um, that book, D. Ray Metallica, um, right. you know, written by the Spanish in the 1500s and translated uh, to English by Herbert Hoover, one of our former presidents. But that book was incredible uh, that even in the 1500s, the Spanish knew how to read the biology of plants to, they could tell whether uh, precious metals or any metals were going into the roots of the plant and disrupting the biology of the plant by its growth, as opposed to all the other like plants around it in a given area. 
and they would go out and actually read these plants and could tell where mineralization and or gold or silver might be buried. So just taking hints from the past, I mean, we don't do that anymore. You know, we don't go into an area and kind of prospect it that way. Now it's all, you know, the geology, it's the satellite, it's a bunch of different more technical things that help you delineate an area. But back then they didn't have any of that stuff. You know, they didn't have highways just to even get from the ship in Mexico all the way up into New Mexico or wherever they were going. They had to put markers in all across the tops of the mountains and they're still out there today. You could still follow it, you know, from the ports in Mexico all the way up into Utah. It's like road signs that never went away. But, um, yeah, Martin was instrumental in finding a whole lot of treasure out there. And, you know, I got to the, the opportunity to work with him. He's still a very good friend and he's still out there hunting you know, in his late 70s. Um, at one point in time, uh, right around probably 2004, 2005, I was in the desert working outside of Socorro, New Mexico, uh, closer, like north of the Roswell area, mm. and was scanning a plateau that you know, kind of, it was a pretty big plateau. And on one side, it was bordered by a creek and a steep wash that went down to the creek. Uh, a, one of our clients, a friend of ours, had found a femur bone that was right, right around three feet long. And, you know, it Wait, had been a, a three foot long femur bone? That's Guy like a, that would be like a, like a giant person, right? Exactly. You know, so he had found this femur bone and he brought it to our group meeting of treasure hunters. We were, you know, kind of convening out there and kind of, uh, you know, just going over a bunch of hypotheses about Doc Noss's treasure and um, Father De Cristio or Father Sangria. I forgot the guy's name, but a bunch of different friars that had come up, the Jesuit priests, and that were hiding different Spanish treasures and bullion and stuff uh, the Indians had covered up before the Spanish even got there. And we were talking about that. And this guy came with this three-foot bone, and he said, you know, that he believed that there was giants on this plateau. And I said, well, I want you to take me out there. So I want to run some EM over the top and see if we can find any of these anomalies. And he did take me out there and right in the area where he had originally found the bone, you know, I was able to locate a 14 foot complete giant skeleton. And, yeah. uh, you know, as soon as word got out that this skeleton was found, uh, it disappeared. You know, so we left it on a Friday and came back on a Monday and this, it was totally scrubbed. The, sky, the site was all the digging that we had done and exposing this skeleton was gone. Everything was gone. Can, can you describe, John, what the site was like? Like how, if you had a guess to like how ancient it was, like how long ago, like was it, was this skeleton like, like any anomalous features with the teeth or the feet or the way it was dressed or artifacts with it? how it was buried, any details like that, I'd be very interested in. I mean, it was buried on the side of the wash per se, but you could see where the wash, this was on the inside corner of the wash and the wash had over the course of many years had you know receded backwards and the, to the hillside was falling away. So where he had originally found the femur was in an area that was on the side of the slope coming off of the flat. And where I found the bones of the skeleton was roughly intact. It was buried in the ground. It didn't have any fur or skin or remnants of that. Most of it's uh, 
just a lot of sand around it. And, but it was mostly there. The head was there. The, uh, it was kind of laying a little, you know, kind of flat, flat out, but kind of its arms crossed over each other or its hands. But, um, uh, you know, and kind of tilted to one side and the bones were mostly in the places they were when the guy died. Um, so they weren't really scattered all over the place. Uh, even I think a couple of the finger bones were missing, but the main bones of the fingers were there. And the more we uncovered it, we had uncovered the head and the top part of the torso and we're working our way down one side. We had a leg exposed and a foot and, uh, you know, we're, not many people knew about it was, which was shocking because there's only about 10 of us and they were my close friends and partners that actually knew about what, you know, what we'd uncovered. And, you know, we just happened to leave it on a Friday and decide, okay, we'll take the weekend off. We'll come back Monday and continue. And when we got back there on Monday, there was no bones. I mean, the whole site was cleaned. Like it's one thing if you're going to come steal it and you're just going to take all the pieces parts and throw it in a sack and go and leave. This somebody had gone through the trouble of taking the bones out and kind of recreating the landscape like there was nothing there. Yeah. Literally, I got back to the site and had to spin around in a circle four times to say, are, are we even on the right spot? I mean, am I in the wrong spot? Did I pass the thing or where is it? Where is it? Huh. It took a long time to figure out that we were it got taken. And, and I still don't know who took it. I, I till this day, I have no idea who stole it. You know, and I want to kick myself, too, because I'm like, well, maybe I should have taken the head, you know, for posterity yeah. uh, or at least to have proof taking something. But it, it wasn't my intention to take it to begin with. You know, I was hoping to call in uh, the archaeologists, had some friends, and I was hoping to get them to take it to the university to be studied and see what, you know, what could be done with it from there. But just never right. got the opportunity. So this was in, you said, New Mexico? That was in New Mexico, yeah. And about what year was, was this? And you were working this was on a job about there? 2005 or 2006, somewhere in there. Wow, okay. And it wasn't buried in like a, it wasn't like in a settlement or like in a cave or anything. It was just like somebody had, it had just laid down like in a little alcove on a hillside. Yeah, I mean, maybe there was, you know, maybe at one point in time there was more land, so it would have been back further from the side of the edge of the work goes down the hill to the creek but i think erosion had pretty much played a part in how it came out huh there's very there similar any... ones i'm sorry oh, go ahead i was just going to ask is there anything other than this uh, you said it was 14 feet tall it was 14 feet when we measured it from the top of its head to the bottom of its Jeez. feet or to the feet i mean for people listening that's like a, a basketball hoop the rim of a basketball hoop is 10 feet so go up four feet above that to mm. the top of the backboard. And maybe you're getting close to like how tall this being was. So was there anything unusual about the skull or the teeth? Was there like, cause you hear rumors like there's double rows of teeth or there's extra toes or extra fingers or anything strange or did it just look like a giant person, like a normal skeleton? It looked like a giant person. The skull was just like oversized of ours, but, much bigger, you know, like uh, twice as big as my own head, maybe you know, three times as big. And it didn't look like it had any damage to it. You know, it wasn't like it was smashed with a boulder and there was cracks in the skull or a hole in it. It was just pretty much intact all the way. 
it had big teeth, you know, it, it had only one row of teeth that I remember. And it, um, it was pretty incredible because I do remember, you know, what, when we found it and exposed it, we literally, I laid on the ground, my buddy laid pretty much with his feet on my head and we still weren't the length of it. You know, if he put his arms up over his head, we were basically the height of the thing. And I was just blown away. Like, holy smokes. You know, we, we physically measured it with a tape measure, but it was just incredible the day that we actually found it. It was, uh, and the anomaly that showed up in the data was the most interesting because it showed that this, all the sand around it and everything around it was, you know, optimally the same on the sand, except for in this area. And it gave a slight orangey red color to its mass. And in the scan data, it didn't look like, you know, anything it just looked like an anomaly, totally out of place. And, considering all the other scanning I had done there, it just stuck out like a sore thumb, like it was something that needed to be investigated. And it wasn't that far down. It was less than two feet from that point of being uncovered. So what was the original reason that you guys were even out there? Because it wasn't to find a skeleton of a giant, you know, like an ancient lost civilization or something. Like what, I mean, what were you looking for originally? Well, originally, yeah, I was looking for that, the, that's where the guy who had the three foot femur told me he got it from. Oh, so I was okay. looking for like some other thing that would, you know, the rest of the bones of that. Cause I couldn't, I asked him, you know, where did you get it? He said, I found it right here in this wash directly below and about 40 feet further to the South of where this, this particular one was. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, I was looking for something along those lines, but I figured I would find some kind of settlement or, you know, maybe some pottery or some something, something that pertained to this thing being in the area for some reason, maybe an arrowhead that would be, you know, extra large size to compensate for these extra large bones. I didn't know what I'd find, but I wanted to go if I would find another, you know, leg or a bone or whatever, you know, I figured it would be pretty cool to see the whole right. thing. So, Did you find anything like any petroglyphs or ancient settlement sites or anything that seemed related to the skeleton? You know, and the weird thing is, is that away from that uh, area and about a quarter mile or an eighth of a mile back is a pretty tall, cliffy, you know, red stony mountain range. Uh, but the walls of that cliff face come straight down into the desert, you know, and just kind of end. You know, they go up in a bunch of spots of maybe 10 or 20 feet. And some faces are 100 feet, you know, so it's kind of craggly uh, along the face wall. And it was curious. I didn't see any petroglyphs along there, but I figured that, you know, these these things had a shelter somewhere. So it would have to be in the rocks or in a cave. And I did go back and scour a lot of that area but it's a huge area and you could be searching forever uh, yeah. rocks lies and all kinds of stuff could have covered those openings and or you know as further time went on and, and i started learning about these giants and bigfoot and you know the solomon island giants i mean there's just more mythical things about these giants than meets the eye you know mm -hmm. as opposed to being them being a leftover of a caveman uh, living in a cave somewhere out there. I really don't think that's the case. I think they were, you know, far more superior for their time frame than we give them credit for. And yeah. maybe had, you know, the abilities to cloak or to um, hide their original locations where they lived, you know, because we still haven't found it. So they hit it pretty good. 
So do you think then that some of these, like the bones that you found could be maybe ancient or something, but there's, are you of the mindset then that the possibility exists that these things are still around? I do think that they're still around. I have a good friend who worked a bunch of years in Solomon Islands and the Islanders, uh, Solomon Islanders out there talk about the giant races that still exist and that, you know, for the time frame coming into World War II, World War I even, you know, while they were um, being invaded by the forces or the military coming in, that there was still a carn- a carn- a carnivorous giants up there, you know, and, yeah. and the, the village people would, you know, kind of made a pact with them, would bring them offerings to keep them from eating their kids. So, uh, and I think that still goes on till this day, uh, as if I'm not mistaken. So yeah. there are supposedly living giants still there, and there are a lot of people that see them, and there's a lot of people still out there hunting for them. Um, you know, maybe we'll get our opportunity to go there and see if that's true or not. It would be pretty incredible to see a 40 foot giant as opposed to a 14 foot giant. Right. <laughs> uh, I, th- I do believe that they're out there. There's so much that we don't know about that we think we know about, but you know, most people are too wrapped up in day-to-day life to even care whether they're real or not. But you know, the truth is there. Um, my, my good friend, Pete Struzieri from season one, he, um, also pulled giant bones and saw a giant in a sarcophagus that came out of Utah uh, probably about 30 years ago. And that person, we're not really sure what happened to the bones in the sarcophagus after the person passed away. But accordingly, they, it was in the guy's garage and uh, has something to do with the area around Brewer's cave and the, the tablets and, uh, gold plates that were found or the brass plates that were found from there. Really? There's definitely a tie-in of all these different beings uh, across time. And we're just missing all those pieces. You know, it's just been kind of hidden from us. Yeah. So let's talk about that. I mean, so you found, you've seen yourself giant bones of which indicate uh, civilization or beings or entities that could even still exist to this day and hiding that are different or have supernatural qualities to them or interdimensional qualities to them. Who knows? It's still unexplained and unknown, but you've seen bones and the folklore's there. The legends are there. The indigenous people like confirm that as well. And you have friends that have pulled, you know, tombs and bodies out of uh, places here in Utah. And so, you know, why is it that, or let's talk about why suddenly you go back and they're just missing. Or there's tablets that come out with a certain writing that tell a different history, and then mm-hmm. boom, they're gone. And you've got stories to tell about some of that. We can get into that in a minute, too, some stone tablets that you've discovered, too. But yeah. so, why, so you found this giant body, and you go back the next day, and then it's gone. So let's, let's discuss that. What do you think is your theory on all that? I, I don't even know what to think. I mean, like I said, there was only 10 of us that actually knew about it. And, you know, everybody was, you know, kind of on the same page, you know, more so my, you know, some of my other colleagues wanted to take the bone home, you know, take his leg home, take his head home, take his hand, you know, have some 
some piece of him or, or it, I should say, I don't know if it was he or her, but yeah, I don't believe that that, you know, was the right thing to do. I, you know, I, uh, it's a touchy subject, you know, people, a lot of the guys were scared. They're like, no, we can't tell an archaeologist about this. They'll come out here and, you know, shoot us. And, you know, the government will come out here and shoot us or do something nefarious. And I, I think that the government probably took it anyway. I mean, nothing's really a secret any of these, these days and technology, even back then was pretty good. Uh, you know, whether somebody saw us or maybe somebody followed our tracks coming in and out of this location. I mean, there's a thousand things that run through my head. It's um, you're not the only person out here in the middle of nowhere. And as soon as you start going out in the middle of nowhere and following the same road or the same trail and leaving a trail behind you that you really can't cover up, you know, yeah. someone might get curious to say where these tracks go. Why yeah. do they go this way? I've done it myself. I, you know, I take these obscure trails and tracks because they're there and somebody went that way in the middle of nowhere for a reason. Were they mining out there? Did they find something cool out there? They, you know, what is it? Where does these tracks go? So I'll usually follow them to wherever they go and just check out what's there just because. So it, it could be a number of things, but certainly over a two day time frame of the, of the weekend, it was gone. And again, I, I would think that if it was somebody who just wanted to steal it and take it home and put it in their living room, prop it up or something that they wouldn't take the time to clean the site, to like prep the soil to say there no digging happened here before. Right. Uh, so that was the more curious thing. Like somebody was trying to trick me into thinking I'm in the wrong spot, but um, yeah, it just disappeared. So do, you, do you think what would be the motive behind trying to take the giant bones instead of being like, hey, we look at what we found and bringing it out to the public? Like, why would an organization, in your opinion, want to cover that up? Yeah, no one wants to rock the apple cart. Uh, cart. They don't want you to think that these giants even exist or existed. You know, that may uh, throw all their teachings into a whirlwind. They'll have to explain where these giants came from. Well, you know, and if they had any kind of special powers or a different living condition or location, you know, they certainly want to keep that covered up too. Now, anything that goes against the grain of a control mechanism, I think, for humans' sake, is taken. Right. Um, and it's so often happens with these huge treasures. It happens with, you know, artifacts and all different types of stuff that anything that goes against the grain of their teachings is automatically taken away, you know, right. and hidden away because I really don't think that if we start understanding that all of these things existed and everything that they teach us, or I have been taught in school or from my parents and my grandparents and, you know, 10 generations of any type of information out there, it's all a crock of crap. <laughs> so, right. You know, but if I, everybody starts to think that, hey, I'm seeing this artifact, I saw this giant, I saw this tablet, and, you know, the writing on it is thousands of years old. It's telling a story that doesn't line up to anything that was in my history books in school, and it's almost the total opposite. They don't want that to get out, because then, you know, we might actually find out the truth and band together against the crapola that they teach us, and then they'll be in a bad spot. They won't have right. the control mechanism, so they can't just run us around like uh, like they do now. <laughs> so. Right, John. Are you allowed to talk about the tablets that you've seen? 
I mean, I can talk about it. I, you know, it's still, a, you know, these tablets represent thousands of years of Earth's uh, history and more so that it shows that people from Europe, people from Egypt and that time frame of Jesus Christ and that era, era and even beyond that, that they were able to migrate into the United States. And, and by doing that, they were able to protect their dead. They were able to protect these tablets and the information and store it away from all of the you know, wars and people fighting on the other side. They needed a safe place to put it. And they found their way into the United States based on, you know, at, at least for the, the tablets that we've recovered so far, you know, they're basically pointing to uh, saying that they're bringing their most special artifacts and their most special deceased persons uh, to a special location that is the second land of Egypt. And the tablets give a direction per se that to say that we're taking these all of these things to the land of Solomon, uh, 30 sunsets to the west. So if you start, you know, looking, that's what's on the actual tablet and it's telling you, well, we were taking all our possessions and all our dead folks and, you know, everything that we value so dearly from being destroyed on that side. And we're going to take it and bring it over here to the second land of Egypt or the land of Solomon, 30 sunsets to the west of the Straits of Gibraltar. You basically end up in the United States, you know, yeah. so. Uh, they do bring all that stuff over here and, you know, it shows up, you know, probably I would say somewhere, you know, after that's, you know, when at the change of time per se, after Christ dies and, and supposedly dies, I mean, and I don't just saying that word supposedly <laughs> automatically, you know, opens a door for conjecture because these tablets and 13 of these tablets are, direct correlations to a first person account of Jesus Christ's Jesus Christ's life. Yeah. So, you know, just looking at these tablets and knowing that the dating on them from 2100 to 10 BC roughly uh, puts them in the time frame of being correct. The the cuneiform text that's on the tablet uh, is phonetically correct. You know, so if you're reading it as a scholar it's not like you could recreate that uh, scratched into a rock, you know, this cuneiform and be phonetically correct to the time frame. You might be able to take the alphabet and, you know, make a sentence out of it, but it's certainly not going to be phonetically correct or be in the same show, the same, the right context of what it's trying to tell you based on the picture on the front side. Uh, and again, you know, what it's saying is just, unbelievable i mean it tells a whole different story of what happened to jesus christ and in the first person you know even the bible wasn't written until 100 years after christ was deceased and the gospels themselves maybe started being written 34 years after his death so you know to look at that and then look at what these tablets are saying it's a totally different scenario than what even the bible says you know but you are, you know, this is, <laughs> this is a deep subject and opening this door is probably not the best time just yet. I don't think yeah. the world is really ready for this information and 
you know, there's just so much strife. People are so wrapped up in this separation mechanism uh, that's been in place for so long that they really can't reach inside themselves to even try to hear what this tablet might say because they're already kind of brainwashed or they're too comfortable with the thoughts that they've already decided that they're going to stand by no matter what. Right. So those type of people, you're not going to change their mind. They were, they are dead set against it. You know, my own parents, you know, my own family members, you know, they're all older folks. They're their generation. You didn't rock the apple cart. There was no taking this information into account. You did what the Bible said and what your church said, and that's it. <laughs> the case right. closed. So, you know, I don't, believe that i mean i see a lot of things that go against the grain especially in all these tablets and all the information there's 825 tablets there that show tell a whole different story about what was going on at, at jesus christ's time and even beyond cleopatra mark anthony the, the whole gamut of people from history that mm -hmm. we have bits and pieces of history in our history books but these first person accounts on these tablets tell a different story. You know, and I'm more inclined to believe the tablet than I am this, these books and that history that's written out there. Right. So, but again, you, I can't go too far down the rabbit hole there because uh, you know, people are very easily put labels on you. If they think you're a kook, then you're a kook. <laughs> right. So, you know, and I can't afford to be a kook and I do stand behind my beliefs and, and, my understandings of these things, but I don't think the world's ready to hear this information. I, I know it really is going to take some doing to, to build a lot more credibility around our space and what we are trying to accomplish by bringing these types of things out to the world so they can understand and slowly maybe disseminate that information further on down the road. So is it going to be possible to do that, John? Like, so like people are going to want to know, like, can we see the femur bone? Did you take any pictures of it? And where is it now? And mm -hmm. same questions for these tablets. Like, where were they found? Is there any photographs? Or how can we see them? Are they going to come out? So what can you say to all of those questions? I think, you know, the, the site that's, uh, that the tablets came out of, the tablets are available. And Peter has uh, 800 and some odd artifacts in his possession and crates in a vault. Um, we are actively working on that site and that site is a total tunnel complex that housed all of this information and those tablets and more than probably the dead people that were brought over and their sarcophaguses and or you know uh, putrefary goods and all that stuff is all buried in this underground complex and slowly you know over the course of time we've been getting closer and closer to getting into the meat and bones of this complex Everything takes time and money, you know, so the hope is that once we open the door and build, you know, first you need to build a follow a following of protection around you and what you're doing, you know, for the sake of humanity. Because governments don't, again, they don't want you to, you know, up, upset, the, <clears throat> excuse me, upset the apple cart. So they do everything in their power to keep you from trying to go into these locations and bring this out to the world by making it illegal to dig up anything. So if I go into a tunnel system in this location and I happen to see a bone or a, you know, a coffin or something along those lines, I have 24 hours to report that to the government 
or risk going to jail or right. and or jail and big fines. So you really have to be careful about, you know, what you're seeing and doing and, you know, how you report that to the world and the type of protection that's needed to protect it from getting stolen. Because once you, you tell them, they're just going to surround the place and take everything that, everything. They'll take everything out of there and just leave the place empty. And you'll have a big old empty tunnel, which will still be pretty amazing to see, but it doesn't really help humanity move forward in its belief system. Right. So, uh, someday we'll protect it with a museum and with the right people behind it. You know, it's one of the things that kind of boils back to what I'm really doing in this space right now is uh, in our Treasure Quest Club NFT, you know, using the NFT to move forward in the treasure hunting space and allow not only uh, the financing of these projects through a crowdfunded, crowdsourced environment and giving people the opportunity to use the NFT or the artwork that represents the project and has its own value inherently right off the start. But, you know, that small amount of money that they buy the NFT with goes into the kitty and allows, you know, the further funding of these big projects so that when we do make these recoveries, that it's a got a lot of eyes on it. You know, this whole adage of treasure hunting for time after time is always so secretive in small groups that it doesn't help, you know, protect the treasures in any way. Just, you know, it's, it's if anything, it helps them be stolen that much more quicker. You know, I think that using the power of the blockchain and this NFT to you know, crowdsource the funding to go after the treasure is the way to go. And put full transparency on it. Let the eyes of the world see what's going on. Let them be involved, you know, thousands of people, as opposed to just the 10 or 100 people. It's a whole lot easier for a government or an entity to come steal it from you if there's only 10 or 100 people. When there's thousands of people looking at it and you have a contract from the government and with your partners and the diggers and everybody else, it's a whole lot easier to hold them to that contract when you got all those eyes on it. And that's right. kind of where we're at in the space now. If we can change what we do going forward and change the way that these treasures are actually gone after and who's seeing it and who's benefiting from it, I think we, you know, we can open every other door out there thereafter. Right. So you're able to use the blockchain in this process of digitally capturing the essence of these treasures and the artifacts and things that you find by minting them in the blockchain, creating NFTs out of them, and then people own a part of that. So the likelihood of them disappearing or vanishing or going, you know, in into nowhere or a private collection goes way down because as you guys are bringing these artifacts forward to the public, they're shared with the public and minted and everything is all backed up uh, and confirmed digitally as well, virtually on the blockchain. That's a really smart way of doing it. Exactly. I think it has to happen. You know, it's uh, so many treasures just go, they go by the wayside. I mean, and I don't expect the guy going to the beach with his metal detector finds 10 coins on the beach to share it with the world. That's his coins. You know, he deserves every single one of them and, you know, more power to him. He wants to give some away to other people. Great. If you don't, fine. You know, but these massive treasures that are out there and people just can't even wrap their head around massive treasure. They just don't get it, especially a place like the Philippines where, you know, the Japanese buried hundreds of thousands of metric tons of gold that they stole from China. 
and China stole it from everywhere else for 10,000 years of dynasties and killed and pillaged and plundered. And who does it belong to? It belongs to everybody on this planet. It doesn't belong to the Chinese and it doesn't belong to the Japanese and it doesn't belong to the Filipinos. It belongs to be shared with everybody. You know, a lot of people gave their life and blood and, you know, suffered for this wealth that they amassed. Yeah. And the Japanese went in and stormed the castle, stole it from them, and then ran out of places to put it. The Philippines was kind of an open kind of place. You could go there on vacation even, you know, 300 years ago. It wasn't really claimed. It was uh, 7,000 islands in the middle of nowhere. And there was a lot of... Uh, beautiful places to go and see and Japanese uh, engineers were in there you know in the early 20s even in the Stanford map collection so what were they doing in there in the 20s they were engineering these locations to make them into vaults so they could steal all this wealth that they stole from mm. from the from China and you know people just don't get it I mean you know our like the Black Eagle Trust Fund that the Americans set up after the war from the gold that they repatriated from the whole situation and, you know, during the war trials and the criminal trials of Yamashita and the imperial uh, princes. I'm sure there was a lot of bargaining going on, <laughs> you know, to get yeah. some of those treasures. You know, you look at that treasure fund or what the Black Eagle rep represented, uh, or there's another one out there, but uh, it was billions of dollars worth of treasure back then you know and even through marcos's whole time in power and according to statements by his bodyguard uh, he said you know for marcos's whole time in power that he was taking out 10 tons a day out of the country you know and it took a long time after uh even marcos passed away that amelda finally came clean and said yeah the bulk of my husband's wealth was from yamashita's treasure uh, tracking all the treasure down that Marcos stole thus far is somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.33 million metric tons that he took out of the country and squirreled into bank accounts and bullion accounts and uh, safekeeping receipts, as they're called, wow. all over the over the world. And and even to this day, you know that gold is sitting in these bank vaults all over the world, and the Executive 300, as they're called. You know, they take an interest payment from that gold every year. So the bank is not going to release it because they're making money on the funds. And, you know, it's in their coffers to use and bet against and borrow and do whatever against. So they're not going to give it up. Uh, and every other country that is included in the Executive 300, well, why would they give it up? They're right. all making interest payments on it every year. Right. Uh, Documentation that I found from 2018 put um, us uh, as an Americans at 2% of the take. And that 2% for 2018 ended up being $2.3 billion. So where did that go? You know, we never hear about that. Nobody hears about that. You know, uh, Queen Elizabeth, she gets 10% of the fund. So we're only getting, you know, 2% at 2.3 billion. She walks away with 20 billion and change. That's only two entities of 300. That's still the other 298 people or entities have to split the rest. But when you're looking at 1. you know, 3 million tons or better of gold spread around, you know, that's a lot of interest going out the door. So this is why, right, when you get close to something or some something of interest or a value or historically paradigm shifting, 
you got to really keep your eye on it and have a way of protecting it because there's a lot of interested parties from all different angles that want a piece of that because you're talking about masses of uh, not only wealth but just historical value that people can't even fathom. So like you're mentioning just for a second, we're, we've been talking about Yamashita's treasure and everything, but you mentioned these tablets. Can you uh, say they, these were found in the United States? The tablets were found in the United States in a cave system that is um, at the top side of, uh, I'll just leave it as a broad general, at the top side of the Mississippi Valley or Mississippi River near Michigan, outside Michigan, and in that general vicinity. Um, really? Wayne May uh, from Ancient America Magazine and Scott Walter, uh, they will also know of these locations, have been studying the tablets from these locations and have some of them in their collections. Um, you know, they do tell a whole different story about what had happened in the past. And originally, there was a gentleman who found the one entrance to one of the original parts of the network back in the 80s. His name was Russell Burroughs. And he went on to pull out about $4.3 million in gold bullion back then uh, and sent it off to, um, uh, what's a famous place there? He sent it off to, I think, Lloyd's of London or... Like he sent it out to a wall with his partner. Um, and then the partner had passed away and there was no death clause, so he couldn't access the money. And then while the lawyer was working on that paperwork, the lawyer passed away, kind of left him high and dry. So he was uh, actually, first they were selling off all these artifacts and as they went along to finance their digging moving forward. And after he had gotten a, you know, a couple arguments with his partners, uh, they basically shut him out of the place. And he resorted to um, basically trying to um, forge some of these artifacts. And that's where the whole thing got muddied up because the real artifacts that were coming out of the place and the forgeries that he was producing, you know, were intertwining with each other. And the scholars that got a hold of some of these artifacts, you know, realized that the ones that he was, you know, forging were forgeries you know and they'll say they just laid claim to everything else that was a forgery and just lumped it all in the same pile which really helped to collect or hurt the collection overall because then no one else wanted to even take the time to study it uh forensically you know to double up or prove up the point that you know it had a prominence and the stone came from florence italy and the dirt and biology and the cracks of the stone had you know proved themselves out to be from 2100 to 10 AD, all of these things, you have to rely on, you know, the, the scholars to come in there and test it. I'm not a scholar, you know, but I can find this stuff and, you know, I can put it, leave it in situ for the scholar, the archeologist, forensic biologist, all these people to come and do their job. Yeah. And, you know, help us, you know, authenticate it and prove it for what it is. You know, people have a, you know, treasure hunting is such a horrible word because, you know, people think you're out just destroying grave sites and desecrating places. And that's just the farthest from the truth. You know, if we come across uh, things that need to be looked at by professionals, that's what we do. We call professionals. We don't just, you know, rip through things and, you know, just because we're on a gold crush and we just want to see the gold. You know, really bringing the gold out is more for the sake of humanity to see and understand and be able to use this wealth to fix some of the problems that we have on this planet. 
than it is for me to go buy a Lambo or a plane or something. I don't need any of that stuff and I don't want it. Right. You know, just seeing the gold, I, I see what gold does to people. You know, when there's a large amount of gold at hand and you're actually looking at it, people will get golden eyeball syndrome. And all of a sudden they start thinking about all the things they're going to buy with it. Right. And how they get to keep as much as possible. Right. And I'm just not about that. <laughs> keep it all, have it all. I mean, it's not about it at all. It's uh, first is, you know, no treasures worth dying over. And secondly, there's just so much good that can come become of these sites. I mean, why, why be greedy? And it's uh, just innately inherent in people to be greedy because, you know, we're kind of conditioned that way. You know, it's right. everybody for themselves because nobody's helping anybody else anymore. So, <laughs> well, and you've realized the true bigger picture of all this too, as you got involved in this, at, at first it's fun. It's like, oh, maybe we're going to find some gold or we'll find some treasure and then I won't ever have to work or have a job again or whatever. But then when you come across some of this stuff like you have and you uh, like, you see things like I've seen, or you talk to people like I have, then suddenly you realize there's a bigger picture going on here because you're talking about the his the history of the earth, the history of humanity and our own origins and everything as we know it being right. completely covered up, being completely hidden. And sometimes even by indigenous groups and people that claim ownership over them mm -hmm. and these big shadow creepy organizations and government organizations that want to control it all and keep it all secret. And you realize all of this stuff that we're told is just myth and fantasy. You've seen this stuff with yourself. You go out there when you get out from behind your computer and you mm -hmm. go out and actually look in these locations for yourself and you follow the evidence and you go try to prove it true or not. It's like, it's mind blowing, John. It's my, it blows your mind, right? It does. It's like you, you've seen you've seen stuff that's completely shifted your reality. Am I wrong? No, not at all. I mean, we haven't even talked about uh, you know one of the treasure stories I just told to our community a couple nights ago, or maybe two a week and a half ago. You know, it was a site that we worked on a Montezuma treasure site out in um, uh, the upper side of uh, Arizona, New Mexico, kind of on the border there, um, and Martin. Again, he had traced this site out. He followed the signs and symbols from Mexico uh, to a what he purported to be one of the cash cash storehouses for Montezuma treasure. And you know, he followed this all these really cool signs and symbols, notches in the rocks, and you know, stuff that Martin really knows well. Animal signs, turtles, and all kinds of cool stuff led him literally about five six miles off the grid. And when he got out to this location, it it kind of stood out by itself, and uh, the Coronado Trail kind of went all the way around it. And um, you know, he definitely missed it when he was coming through. But Martin found the location, and on this location was this giant thunderbird carved in the rock, huh. overlooking the site. Just the guardian of this site. I mean, this this bird was carved out of solid granite uh, that. You know, it stood about 30 feet tall, probably 40 foot wide and 12 feet thick. Huh. And Martin, you know, he gets out to the location. That's, you know, that roughly sitting around 6,200 feet in elevation. And he's he knows he's on the right spot. He's like, this has got to be it. There's the guardian Thunderbird. You know, this is he's in the spot. He's, you know, just leaning back on the rock, taking it all in and it starts raining. 
uh, which is, you know, rare in the desert. When it rains, it pours, you know, and it doesn't yeah. pour very long. But this particular time, it started pouring and really started picking up, you know, a lot of uh, heavy rain. And he had just hiked 12 miles to get into the location. So he was pretty whooped. And as the water's picking up, it's starting to collect on the rock surface and little pools. And, you know, it's all running downhill on the slope. And the little pools are turning into... Uh, little gully ways and that's all all the water's coming together and kind of following a channel off the mountain and he's leaning on the rock and he hears this noise after a while that sounds like a waterfall and he's like well, i'm gonna follow that noise i'm gonna go see where this waterfall is and he followed the, all the water gathering up and he went around a corner down below him and there was a hole in the ground it's about 25 inches round and it looked like you know kind of like a culvert the water was just shooting off into this culvert hole that went directly in the ground and he could hear the water dropping off you know some distance before it's splashing at the bottom so he got down on his hands and knees with a pen light and he climbed in there and shined the light down and he said that the whole thing was filled with gold bars you know stacked up across the floor with spanish armor of all different types of precious metals and or iron and rusted leaning up against the wall and when he shined his light to the right there was you know these three stone chairs at the end of the pile of gold that went into a tunnel and he said that there was you know three kings or three conquistadors sitting in the chairs that oh, they had all their armor on he could see the bones of their hands on the armrests of the chair and that they had these stone boxes in their lap of some sort. He couldn't really see from his vantage point, but it was like a 30 foot drop to the floor and it's pouring buckets outside and he has no way to get down there. And if he did go down there, he'd have no way to get out. Hmm. So he decides that he's going to have to leave it and come back another day. You know, when he pulls himself out of this hole, while the water is coming down, still wants to go in the hole and his plump body is covering the hole. So now he's got, he's just soaked. The water's building up behind him, and he decides, okay, it's time to get off this hill and come back later, figure out a plan to get in there. And uh, he works his way down the valley further, and uh, all these washes are coming together, and now the creek is, you know, what used to be a dry creek bed that he had to cross over to get back to his truck is now raging. Right. He knows he can't get past that. So he decides he's going to climb up the cliff face a little bit and kind of wait it out at a higher elevation, just right above the thing, about six or seven feet. And so he climbs up there and sits on this little ledge and covers himself up with a tarp. And he said, you know, a couple hours, three, four hours later, the creek had already risen up to that point where it was going to wash him off the ledge. And he had no choice but to jump into the water to try to swim across, and he couldn't. He said once he jumped in the water, that was it. The current just took him. And he ended up a mile and a half away you know, where it kind of dissipated out into the valley and spread out over a wider course and alluvial fan, and he kind of dropped them off in the sand. Wow. But by that time, he was already, you know, he had dislocated both of his hips, you know, cracked a couple toes and had, you know, massive scrapes and bruises all over his body. It took him three days to, to climb, you know, go from that location back to his truck, literally wow. almost crawling. Um, and they couldn't get back into the location for a year and a half after that. He didn't trust too many people. I didn't know him that well at the time. And uh, he entrusted his best friend to go up there and look for it. He gave him directions to get in there. And the guy went and he, this guy could not find the hole to save his life. 
and Martin couldn't figure out what, why not? Why, how can you not find a hole? It's, you know, literally off the face of the bird, like 75 feet down the hill and it's a big hole. You can't miss it. Huh. The guy went back and forth two or three times in there and he could not find it. And he was, you know, a pretty smart guy. He was a soldier at White Sands Missile Range. He, he was no slouch, you know, so, but that hole eluded him. And finally, uh, Martin brought it to my team and my guys, and he told us a story, which I thought was fantastic and incredible. And he didn't have any pictures, but uh, I believed him. You know, he, he's, he was never known to lie to me in the past. So yeah, I uh, got an investor involved, and we took a helicopter and flew in there. And you know, we wanted to see this place, and we were also jammed up and hyped up about it. I mean, we went in on... Uh, Thanksgiving, a one of those Thanksgivings, maybe 2013, somewhere in there, and flew in on Thanksgiving. It was like eight inches of snow on the ground in that location. It's like 28 degrees outside, freezing. Yeah. <laughs> so um, maybe not the best time to go, but I went right to that location to where he said, and you could not, there was nothing there. There was no hole there. Huh. It was, you know, like uh, the whole area was covered in like decomposed granite. So all the decomposed granite, little pebble pieces, parts are all over like marbles. You got to really be careful where you're stepping in there, especially when it's frozen over and icy in some spots. But we looked high and low for, you know, two days. Uh, but more importantly, though, <laughs> the first night in there, um, you know, there's myself and Martin and my team members at the time was about two, three, four, uh, four more guys besides Martin and I. And we set up camp and it's cold. It's like 28 degrees out. We're tent camping up there. Yeah. And, you know, we build a big campfire and have some dinner and we're sitting around. And um, the next thing you know, this uh, little orange orb of light of a fizzy ball, looked like a sun, like a little miniature sun comes shooting across the sky and then stops about two and a half miles out straight in front of us uh, to the south, southwest. Huh. And it's kind of hovering there right across the top of this mountain range. You know, from our perspective, it looks like it's maybe 800, 1,000 feet up off the top of the mountain range directly across from us. And we're just watching it. It literally looks like a little sun. It's kind of like fizzing and popping, but nothing dripping off it, but just kind of like glowing in and out and uh, literally like yellow colors of the sun, a little bit reds and oranges. And we're watching that. And then another one came. Another one comes up from the south and comes shooting across the horizon right right behind where this one was and stops about a half a mile short of it. And through the course of the next hour and a half or so, nine of these things line up across the, the ridge over there, and they're just sitting there. And we're just in awe. We're like, holy crap, are we seeing this? Is this even real? Uh, and one, you know, the, the first one would like, before the second one came, the first one blinked off, like just totally shut off. There was nothing there. And then it just turned back on when the second one came in. It just huh. lit back up like, holy, holy crap. <laughs> so we watched that, that whole thing go on. They got us, nine of them sat there on the horizon about a half mile apart for hours and hours and hours. And, you know, about two o'clock in the morning, you know, I would say about midnight, the, the rest of the four guys went to sleep. They weren't really interested in it like Martin and I were. And around two in the morning, I couldn't take it anymore. I was cold and just wanted to get my sleeping bag and get some rest. Martin sat out there for another half an hour and they 
they all gathered up behind themselves around 2.30 in the morning about, I don't know, from our perspective, very close together. And they all kind of shifted right along the horizon across the top of that ridge. And then they all banked a left-hand turn and disappeared over and into a valley. And that was that. Huh. Went to sleep. Um, somewhere in the middle of the night, though, um, you know, I don't know what time it was, but I thought those guys were outside my tent, you know, screwing with me. And they, you know, were putting like an eight inch flashlight beam like directly on the tent. So, you know, the light coming through the, the tent and, and hitting my eyelid, uh, eyelids was in so intense that, you know, I felt like the morning sun breaking through and I woke up and looked was still pitch black and I just had this big white circle of light, you know, shining on my tent directly up from me. And I'm in the mummy bag because it's cold and I usually don't get in the mummy bag. So I couldn't figure out like why my hands were in it. I was literally mummified in the bag and I couldn't get my hands up enough out to even get to the zipper. And I was a little confused. (laughs) So, um, but with that, the light backed away from the tent and the whole area lit up like daylight out there. You know, I'm still trying to get my arm out just to get out of the sleeping bag so that I can open the tent to see what's going on. And while I'm futzing with that, the whole area is lit up nice and bright outside. It just went pitch black in a second. Like all of a sudden it was just pitch black, like someone threw a switch and it was dark again. And I barely had gotten my hand, one arm out, you know, to even go for the tent zipper. And uh, when everything went dark, I just sat there like kind of in my bag, looking around in the tent, like wondering what the hell's going on. And I figured out I just went to bed. Let's confront him in the morning. And I went back to sleep Uh, in the morning. I did confront the other guys and, you know, ask him which one was being, you know, trying to be funny. And they had no clue what we were talking about. Martin saw the same exact thing that I did and, those guys, you know, proclaimed that it wasn't them and and we'll kind of let it go at that. That oh. whole next day, we went out and looked for the treasure and looked for this open space that was non-existent. The, where Martin said the hole was, I took him down there. He didn't really get around all that good, but we took him down to that location where he saw the hole and it was no hole there. There was just a giant hump of stone, you know, that looked like a mushroom cap of this decomposed granite. And whoever had built that hole in had made this mushroom cap to fit over it. It looked exactly like the rest of the rock around it. I mean, you really couldn't tell that there was a hole there. The only reason I knew, you know, Martin said it, and I was able to get my pickaxe underneath the edge of the end of the cap where it actually went out onto the natural bedrock and made this little lip there. And I was able to chip chip the piece off of there. And I'm like, wow, you know, there is a cap here. He's right. It just we didn't have the tools like maybe four feet across and three feet tall huh. of a plug that was in there. So we knew we were going to have to come back with some tools to try to get in there. Um, the next very next day or that very next evening, I should say, after we came back to camp and new campfire and have some dinner and some tea, some coffee and sitting around, the fizzy light ball came back. It came flying from behind us and shot over our head probably from about 800 feet up. And it wasn't very big. I mean, from our perspective, it looked like the size of maybe a Volkswagen or so, maybe about that size. And it shot past us and went straight out uh, back towards, uh, you know, going north, uh, north, northwest. And from that point, it 
you know, banked a hard turn to the right, almost a 90 degree, excuse me, to the left, uh, a 90 degree turn to the south and started going that way. And just at that moment when it made the turn, you started hearing a jet, the noises of a jet plane, jet, some, and I'm not a big person that knows a lot about jets, but according to the other guys, they said it was an F-15 fighter plane. Two F-15 fighter planes came swooping in and started chasing this thing all over the place, all around us. And that thing ran circles around the whole thing. For about 45 minutes, we got this most awesome show of our lifetimes as this thing would bang, you know, come flying overhead and then to go straight up in a 90 degree corner, go straight up in the air. And the jet would try to do that going after it and, you know, pull back on the stick and the back end of the plane would slide into the forward position as he tried to go up. And wow. the afterburner would kick in, just you know, making this amazing noise and just an amazing sight to see. Um, and this went on, like I said, for about 45 minutes. And then the, the fizzy ball all of a sudden started dropping like what looked in the beginning, it looked like flares dropping out the back end. These little white round balls of light started dropping out of the back end of this thing the two fighter jets split off. They were, you know, basically right behind each other following this thing. And they split off to either side. And uh, these white things started falling out the backside. And I thought, again, we thought they were flares, but about four or five of them fell out. And then they all gathered up behind the mother and then took off to the south with the jets. They all went that way. And then it got totally quiet. And we all looked at each other like, wow, that was, that was something else. Try to pull off a couple of pictures. I was able to get some pictures off of this stuff. And, um, you know, the pictures, the thing is moving around so fast that, that there's like blurs in the pictures. They look like horseshoes in there, but they're all different colors, which is weird. And the sky behind it, all the stars were totally still. So I knew I had captured it because, you know, for even just looking like streaks of light in the film. But you could individually pick out every single star in the picture in the background. So I'm like, wow, I got something on there. But does it prove anything? No, not really. It just proves that there's something on there. Right. So what do you think, John? Why, how come these How come these like orbs of light or like balls of intelligent light that get called like UFOs or UAP, UAPs and stuff are always associated with these ancient locations or these indigenous locations or, or treasure caches or for lack of a better term, like you go to these sites, I go to these petroglyph sites, these ancient locations, and they're always tied in with this, these kinds of experiences and stories. Like, so do you think this is like extraterrestrial phenomenon or something more closer to home and tied into our own ancient history? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think that, you know, these sites like this Montezuma site, you know, for all that's been done there, you know, in our ancient past, we just don't know. Maybe they were coexisting with us, with humans at the time and something, you know, stopped that from, you know, continuing on into the future. Um, you know, there's so many things that it could possibly be. I mean, I've seen, you know, Martin has sent me multiple pictures from his house. He has lots of orbs that show up and just kind of hang out at his house and around him. Even a lot of my pictures that I take of Martin, he's got orbs over his head. And these orbs are, you know, not very, 
not always the same orb. You know, there are blue ones and there are some yellow ones and green ones. And but in the interior of the orb, sometimes they're they're shaped different inside of the actual circle that is like a hazy light that you can mm. see. The insides sometimes look like a Pac-Man, like you know, kind of you know, a chunk of it kind of missing uh, inside of it, or even like a football shape on the inside of these things. And you know, my my feeling about these orbs is that I think it's the conscious energy of our past deceased folks that are kind of watching us all the time. You know, they always say that, you know, we, when we're, we expire from this container, you know, our energy is, you know, uh, around in that fourth dimension, the fifth dimension. Yeah. And maybe, you know, Martin's just lucky enough to get them on film and, or to see them. And that, these energies coexist with us at any given time, just while they're waiting for their opportunity to re-inhabit a new container when their time comes. But um, it's really hard to say exactly what they are. They certainly aren't, uh, you know, my feeling is if F-15 fighter jets are chasing after them and they are certainly intelligently controlled, uh, I don't think that they're American or that they were built on this planet in any way, shape, or form. Right. And why they're, you know, protecting this location, I would imagine because of the amount of wealth that's stored at this location, it means something to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a very curious niche of, um, there's a carved out niche on this location. Now, the, where the bird is about, I don't know, 200 yards in front of the bird. There's like two valleys. And then there's a rock formation that looks like a ginormous turtle. And it's Mm. probably, I don't know, uh, maybe 150 feet long and, you know, with the head and it's turtle shell back and, you know, no feet at all, just the head sticking out. But just below the head on the downhill side of this elevation, if you go there, you, there's this, hexagon hole a pretty big hole about three and a half feet across per se and probably as at least that deep uh that is angled in such a way towards the sky that there's there's places for candles in there like five different little ledges where you could see the soot on ceiling in there that somebody would put little fires on these five little spots in this niche hole and that you know if you stand with your back at the niche hole and look out for where it is it you can't see it you can't see it from the ground anywhere there's a hill right in front of you across the canyon that would block it at that elevation to be seen from a road or somewhere far away this niche shows up to the sky why why would that be there and why is it showing up to the sky who there would be nobody there to see that light coming from that location and in that niche except for somebody in the sky huh (laughs) And it does point in the direction of uh, the, the San Carlo Indian Reservation, which also has had, you know, major sites, uh, sightings of different types of extraterrestrial craft or UFOs or whatever you want to call it. Um, there's, you know, some strangers going on in that location. And this place, you know, looks right at it. Um, I don't think that's a coincidence. You know, it's all connected together somehow. And I'm certainly sure that, they're protecting that location from being pillaged um, yeah. so far. <laughs> I agree. I think the uh, 
the little trips and research that I've been doing over on my Carl the Crusher channel where I go out and adventure around is kind of showing the same evidence and everything. And you've actually been confirming it and then having these, the phenomenon appear and different things. It's, it's so fascinating. So this stuff is out there. I mean, these tunnel systems are there. These cave systems are there. And along with it comes uh, a totally different sense of the supernatural or the spirit world or this connection to our past. But you also mentioned that there might be this connection to other worlds or extraterrestrials in contact with these civilizations and what they were doing. So have you come across any stories or seen yourself anything that would indicate like a, a relic that would be considered extraterrestrial or uh, exotic, not from this world in a sense? I, you know, there's sites that I'm going after that's in the Philippines that supposedly have pieces of spacecraft that were taken by the Germans that they were back engineering the technology before the war. They knew that the war was coming, closing in on them as well and the, on the Germany side. So they took that material and they stored it in a bank in Singapore, which ultimately was sacked by the, the Japanese. And some of that material ended up in one of these locations in the Philippines, which is on my you know bucket list of things to do to get there. Um, you know, I there's not you know it's, it's really tough to talk about this for me, but <laughs> I I had an, an encounter on that mountain. Uh, and Martin also thinks that he was also included in this encounter, which is highly possible. But, you know, that night that that light showed up um, on the tent and then lit up the whole area, then everything went black. You know, there's one thing that still bothers me until this day as these, A, I never get in the mummy bag mummified you know my arms never go in the bag all the way in i never zip that bag up to the point where it's only you know i am stuck in the bag with a, my face sticking out and that's it so that's a little confusing to me how i got in the bag so tight in it <laughs> with the yeah. zipper all the way up around my neck and the velcro closed over the zipper and my hands at my sides you know that's almost impossible to do just getting into that thing. I'm sure people do it, but it's not the way I sleep in the back. Uh, so that was the first thing. Um, you know, it's, I, I, I have a tough time, you know, talking about this because every time in the past that I've ever told any person that I trusted or uh, just thought that, you know, that I needed to kind of get it out there and I couldn't really understand what was going on, but it has not brought me any good thing at all. You know, not that I ever told somebody because I wanted some kind of gain or I just wanted a better understanding and I wanted their personal opinion as being my friends for my whole life. Yeah. And a, they didn't give me their opinion. They more so gave me the cold shoulder like I was crazy. And, you know, till this day, I don't have those friends any longer because I think I'm nuts. <laughs> so. So you got to be careful, you know, how you approach these subjects. But um, that evening, <laughs> before I actually went to bed, you know, the one, the last thing I remember doing was going to the bathroom. 
And hence, yes, you know, people go out camping and they have to go to the bathroom. You know, welcome to the real life. Uh, and I had a bucket buddy, you know, just basically a compound bucket that has a toilet seat and special bags that go inside it so that you can do your business and then dig a hole and you bury the bag. It's biodegradable and everything's good. And, you know, at least you're not squatting over a tree trunk somewhere or on a cactus. Um, so I was out in the front of my tent and down the rock face a little further at 180 degree view of this, the surroundings. And this um, this light, this, this people call it tic-tac. I don't see, see it as a tic-tac. It did not look like a tic-tac. It looked like I was looking broadside of this craft of some sort. And it, you know, from where my position is, I'm higher up above where the bird is in elevation and the bird is down the hill from me about you know, 300 yards. And out in front of the bird is, you know, this ungulating decomposed granite um, ground that Martin walked down and went around the corner in front of it behind some tree that was there to find that hole. And that's in my view from where I'm sitting, literally. Um, at one point, the, the, the light comes up over the top of the hillside that's directly behind it. It comes up very slowly and it's not really lit up. It's kind of like the reflection of the moon is reflecting on it, but it's not reflecting. It's like a flat metallic surface that doesn't have like real reflectivity, but I can see the outline of it as it's coming up over the top of the hill and I'm just looking at it and staring at it like in kind of disbelief because I didn't really know whether it was actually there or not. And maybe it was just my eyes playing tricks on me, but it got like right over in front of the bird and then it actually had a slight glow to it. And it was just sitting there about, I don't know, maybe 50 or 75 feet off the ground at that point. And now I'm like really kind of staring at it. And I'm not, I'm on, almost in disbelief of my eyes if this is real. Uh, with that, uh, a light comes out from underneath it that's, you know, skinny at the top. And, you know, a triangle shape of light comes out of it. But the pointy part is at the top and, you know, the bottom's wide and there, it's a bright white bluish light that kind of it's so brightly intense and it's it's being that i it, i can't see through the light i can't see the rocks behind it it's just this big bright light white light comes out and then there's a, a tall person and a short person standing underneath it in in the light and i'm looking at it and i'm like yeah wait a second is this a, like a tree i'm i'm seeing things i'm not and i'm scared you know, don't don't think that I'm not. <laughs> and I, I hate to admit that, but it's the truth, man. I was really starting to like literally shake, you know, I was yeah. like really getting fearful. I was like, oh, my God, is this really happening? And I'm trying to finish up my business, no less, on the toilet. So I'm trying to do that hurry, hurry and get cleaned up and do whatever. And now I'm standing up and I've got the bucket in my hand and I'm, I'm hiding behind this edge of this pine, this little fir pine tree, this juniper bush. And I'm kind of peeking out around the corner, like seeing what's going on. And I look and this thing is still there. And this craft is a skinny, tall woman in white clothes. And there's a short woman or a shorter being next to her. I didn't know their gender at that point. Um, and I'm watching and I'm staring like intently at this location. And, you know, it was weird because every time I blinked my eyes, 
the short person was 50 feet closer to me. Mm. And the other person stayed there under the light of this craft. And the, the short one kept coming closer. And I like the more I strained to keep my eyes open, the closer the person got. Every time I blinked, it was she was like 50 feet closer, 50 feet closer until she was three feet in front of me. And I'm looking at her. Uh, I'm looking at it at this point in time. And she's she's wearing like a white Carhartt type suit. Like a, like a one-piece jumpsuit that's made out of white canvas of some sort, and it's got a hood on it, and there's like, I can see the fur or something around the edge of the hood. I can see her facial features, the black hair with a bob haircut. She didn't have giant almond eyes or whatever. I mean, she had more of a uh, an Asian-style features of face, and she had black gloves on. And she got right up to me, and I'm staring at her, and she she speaks out, you know, in my head, I hear her very, very clearly. She said, you know, what do you, what do you want? And what are you doing? What are you doing here? And what do you want? And she, but she didn't speak it with her, her mouth. You know, and I heard her very clearly and I'm, mm. you know, the first thing that comes out of my mouth is we're not here to take it all, which was true. I wasn't there to take all this treasure. I was just, you know, there for the enjoyment of being there and to really see this location. You know, taking all the treasure was the farthest thing from my mind. And that's the only words that came out of my mouth. We're not here to take it all. And while I said that, I'm like thinking in myself, like, why did you say that? Why, you know, did you actually say, well, she didn't speak. So what are you saying? And I'm staring at her and she's pulling her glove off, you know, and she's like, kind of like slowly pulling her black glove off of her hand and my hand is going to shake her hand without me wanting to do that. Like my hand is already kind of going into this handshake position and she's pulling her glove off to shake my hand and she does shake my hand. And, you know, with that, after she shakes my hand, I'm just standing there looking dumbfounded and stupid. And with that, she just turned away from me and she started walking back towards that craft and, you know, a couple of blinks later, she was under the craft with the skinny person. And and the next thing I know, the light turns out and the craft just didn't take off. You know, like a rocket ship, it just slowly moved away from me and kept on going towards the San Carlo Indian Reservation. And I, I didn't know whether it was a dream or not. You know, I thought, like, did that really happen? You know, even to this day, I still scratch my head. Like, was that real? Did it really happen or did it not really happen? Am I it's not something you can just make up out of nowhere. Right. And again, I've had this conversation with Martin. He's, he seems to think that something very similar happened to him that same night that we saw the light in the tent and he just can't put his finger on it one way or the other. Um, you know, so I, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm still on the fence about the whole thing. Um, it wasn't until like a year and a half later, I was at a conference looking uh, to explain how we changed the software of that EM machine to a bunch of military folks who are going to try to use that thing for UXO uh, de detection. And they were yeah. going to use the EM detector to detect these UXOs that were um, all over the place. And some of them were ceramic and not metal. So they didn't have a metal signature that a metal detector could pick up, but the EM could pick up the difference in, the uh, electromagnetics coming through the device that would, you know, kind of make it stand out away from the surrounding ground. 
and you could tell that it was some kind of anomaly that didn't belong there. You know, and probably by the shape, you could probably pick up that it might have been an unexploded ordinance of, of some sort. While giving that, um, teaching these people or explaining how that equipment worked, that that woman <laughs> walked into the room with the tall woman in a white lab coat. And, you know, we were, I was in a conference room with about 15 different people of all different calibers of military people and people in fatigues, people with all the jazz on their jackets and stuff and doctors and their white coats and whatever. I'm just telling them about how this equipment is going to help them solve this problem. And in the door walks those two ladies. And the short lady was that lady that I saw in the field. And now I'm like, you know, my, all the hair on the back of my neck stands up and I've got like a chill going on and I'm trying, I'm stuttering because I can't get the words out anymore because now I'm just like totally shocked by seeing this woman in this room. Uh, and with that, the, the tall lady, you know, reaches into her pocket and puts this crystal on the table that is about the size of halfway between the size of a baseball and a golf ball. And it looks like a quartz crystal that has some terminations on it. And, you know, it just doesn't look at a, it looks like a crystal, like a rock. And she puts it on the table. You know, I look down at it and, and I continue my conversation with these people. And I look over at her and she looks at me and she gives me like a feeling of, you know, don't worry, it's okay kind of feeling. And I actually hear the words in my head, but I don't hear them with my ears, you know, some now I'm even more scared, you know, a little more scared, yeah. a little more uneasy about the whole thing. Couldn't really, I didn't really know what was happening. I felt like just something was just totally off and I couldn't wait to get the hell out of there. You know, so I finished up pretty quickly and, you know, pretty much got out of there as fast as I could. The person that had taken me to this meeting was basically saying goodbye to these people on the way out the door. And the door opens. I'm about to step through it. And the woman, the tall woman, puts her hand over the top of that crystal. And a 3D holographic projection of a little dude's head popped up out of it in purple. And now I'm, like, really intrigued. I look behind, like, the edge of the door as my friend is shoving me through it. Like, come on, time to go. You know, and A, I'm like, you know, why would you do that? Why would you even put it on a table and then activate it to let me see it before I left? You know, that just doesn't make any sense. Um, and I'm nobody special. I don't have a military clearance. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a lawyer. I'm nobody. I'm me. You know, and I've had a lot of experiences in the field and a lot of strange things have happened. But I don't feel like, you know, I should be singled out amongst everybody else because, you know, I just don't have the credibility that a lot of those people have. And I still wonder to this day, like, what was the reason? What What is the reason that this all happened? Um, I wish I had an answer for you. <laughs> Did they deliver any kind of message? I mean, this girl appeared twice, and I got to be honest with you, I've been uh, I've been reading these books by an author called Philip K. Dick, and mm -hmm. also I've been reading John Keel's writings as well. Uh, he wrote like the Mothman prophecies and a bunch of those, but they've mm -hmm. also both of these guys had encounters with a short female with dark hair that just would appear at their doorstep mm -hmm. and deliver some kind of a message and some kind sometimes telepathically or they would get a random phone call from this woman's voice or they would just turn a corner and there she would be so like I, it's so it doesn't surprise me 
and you're among friends sharing that story here. Like uh, I talked to a lot of people, you know, people from the uh, border patrol to, you know, uh, people that work in all different walks of life and for the government itself. And like, you know, they, they have these experiences too, and mm-hmm. they have strange encounters, but um, so I, I believe you, did anybody else in the room see this girl or was it just something that you feel like that was just shown to you and they walked in just within your perception or i you know my friend that was there um he was you know he was privy to it he saw the the holographic projection as well he saw the woman and he just said you know i said does that woman you know do you know who that woman is or does she ring a bell or you know this person's name it's just like no I, I i never met her before i never saw it before and it wasn't until like you know it bothered it was the whole event was very unsettling for a, yeah. a long time i struggled with you know what does this mean like why 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 am i seeing this like why did i see that why did that woman come from out of that craft and then show up in this location at this particular moment in time uh telepathically or somehow or another talk to me that I actually, it was like hearing her in my head, you know, like I heard her through my ears, but she did not speak. And it wasn't until like six or seven months down the street. And I was really struggling with, you know, like, what does this all mean? I mean, what, what is the real purpose of the point of me knowing this information? And I would, you know, come out at, at at nighttime and talk to the sky out loud in my backyard. I'd literally be having conversations with the stars and God, the Creator, to ask Him, like, what is the point? Why, like, why did you? Why? What? What is it that you want me to know? And and at that moment in time, when I said, you know, I give up, I I give up. I'm not going to pursue this any longer. I'm just, you know, if you had something to tell me and you didn't tell me. You know, I'm tired of being, you know, struggling with this within myself. I got a life to live and, you know, it's getting depressing. And uh, I think, you know, maybe I am losing my mind. And with that, (laughs) she came back. You know, she came there. A light showed up in the sky, blinked twice and over the top of my house. It looked like a star. And I caught caught it out of my peripheral vision. I saw this blink. And. You know, again, here I am talking to the stars at night. I'm like, what is the point? Mm. And, you know, just at that very moment in time, she said, take all the information that you want to know and learn it to the nth degree in each compartment and the truth will expose itself to you. Yeah. And I didn't know what the hell that meant either. I was like, what are you talking about? You know, that was it. She didn't say anything else, but it was in her voice. And I'm like, you're talking to me again. And nothing. It was like crickets. I'm talking to myself again. But I, those words stuck with me. And I'm like, what does that mean? Like, learn everything I want to know. Learn all the compartments in to their nth degree, and the information will reveal itself. Yeah. So you know, it took me a while to figure out what exactly that meant. But it meant exactly what she said. Take all the things that we think we know about in life and learn it. As much as you need to know, your your brain will tell you when you've learned enough about that compartment to have enough information and move on. Yeah. So I started breaking everything down into these little compartments of information. I started learning them to the nth degree, as she put it, to I, to a point where I thought I knew enough information about that subject and I'd move on to the next one. And I just kept doing that and doing that and doing that. 
And as I learned new and saw different um, finds or, you know, different discoveries around the world, you know, not by my colleagues, by myself, you know, all of this pieces of information started to actually come together and this huge picture just developed. And, you know, one day it just clicked. It was like, oh my God, this, this, this life that we live is a farce. All the information we've told been told is all lies. And it's all about this control mechanism and that we as humans have been duped into believing all this stuff and thousands of years of history and understanding about our past has just been kept from us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was just like this revelation I came to. I'm like, oh, my God, it's like so much information that's been all there right in front of our face the whole time. Little bits and pieces of it that you have to disseminate where, you know, what's the truth and what's crap. And there's a whole lot of crap wrapped around a little tiny piece of truth. Um, but, and, and every single different compartment that they are, but like she said, once I figured out like a little, each little compartments piece of information, the grand picture started to close in and this just blossomed open. You have this like vision of, you know, of the truth. Yeah. And it's, it's a scary truth. It's not so much scary for the humans per se, but it's a scary reality, you know, because it's a fear factor. We don't, you know, really truly understand all the mechanisms that that create us that that make us who we are and this this method has has allowed me to figure out you know what is it what does it mean to be human and how are we supposed to be coexisting with our planet and all of our surroundings and you know one of the key things is you know just taking hints from nature nature gets along just fine with every with all itself, every blade of grass, every flower, every tree, every animal out there, they all get along great. Even the carnivores get along great. You yeah. know, it's us that is the problem. So somehow or another, we got to figure out a way to change the the psyche of a, of a human race moving forward. And, um, you know, once I started compartmentalizing all this information and figuring out all the, all the compartments and how they fit together, some of them are so profound about you know our conscious energy and the conscious energy of a planet and our species and how it's supposed to coexist within this container uh it's it gets really deep and kind of messy and i don't know if people are really you know yeah. can really understand it or grasp it but eventually the truth has to come out and uh you know you, you eat the elephant one bite at a time so right now we just gotta bite off a chunk and kind of chew it up and get it disseminated and then work on the next piece right and maybe eventually in my lifetime or maybe <clears throat> long after i'm dead people will even have start to have an understanding of it Only yeah pre- people don't realize that this whole picture the way that reality functions in and of itself is so tied into our own thoughts and attitudes and emotions day to day, almost like the, I, I hate to make this comparison because people get confused, but like in the same way that when we're asleep at night and you're dreaming and you realize that you're lucid dreaming, meaning like you're aware that you're in a dream, mm-hmm. you start to ask yourself, like, how does this dream reality work? Like how, what is it made of everything that I'm seeing and what I'm interacting with is completely made of your own subconscious anticipations and your own intentions and your own mind in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways interfaced with a like as a psychic reality and experience around you 
And here we are awake day to day in a reality where we share this entire landscape. We share almost like a collective consciousness mm -hmm. and, and we're the only ones in that reality that perceive it as though we're on a timeline moving from the past to the future. There's all these other dimensions of reality that are outside of that moving from the past to the future that are overlapped with ours. I'm, right. I'm trying to find the words to describe a little bit what you're hinting at, but what you're saying is like, when we dig into the ancient past and we start coming up with the truth of it, and when you're able to open your mind and your consciousness to what that truth actually reveals instead of trying to cover it up and hide it, which has been the status quo up to now, right. when you allow yourself to accept the hard reality, like, oh, wait, our our world is does not come from a past like we have been taught. We've been duped. We've been controlled. We've been lied to and we've been duped. Reality is not what we've been told. Our history is not what we've been told, and us as humans are not what we've been taught and told as well. And if you can get over all of that, then this whole other world of potential opens up to us because we realize, oh, we're not limited like we've been told, and we're not the chickens kept within the chicken coop like we've been taught to stay. We have mm -hmm. this unfathomable transcendental potential as humans that a lot of these ancient cultures were tapped into. And that is the big secret is that they understood this. They were in contact with these other dimensions or with these other sources of energy and they were utilizing them. And that's what's really being covered up is that ancient past and connection with uh, the nature of reality and the energy of the earth mm -hmm. and these other dimensions and beings that live in those dimensions. And, so right. I don't know. I just tried to tackle it in a few words there, but I mean, am I hitting close to home for your experience too, John? You are. I mean, you know, what I I think I what I realize is that you know the modification of the human genome across time has been going on for a very long time. You know, we even as the in today's time frame and our doctors, our technology, our you know CRISPR systems, where we can gen, you know genetically change or modify gene structure to what yeah. we need it to be. You know, we can grow ears that look like humans on mouse's backs and do all of this crazy stuff. Well, this stuff was going on, you know, all the depictations in Egypt about, you know, a most of the beings were very big stature, giants in their own right, plus the modification of the genome that was going on. I mean, do you think a civilization would take such time and finesse to carve a bird-headed man or, uh, you know, some minotaur-looking dude or all of these things in stone with the rest of their history, if it wasn't existing at the time, mm -hmm. you know, we talk about, there's this, um, you know, there was, there was the religious side of it, you know, God smiting the planet and, and creating the great flood to get rid of all the abominations of mankind. And these are the modifications that were going on to change our genome to a working slave for their benefit. And slowly across those modifications, we are who we are today. Mm -hmm. um, you know, these modifications were going on for, you know, quite some time. And I think as, you know, if we were left alone to our own devices, like a Neanderthal man, you know, certainly at this point in time, we would still be like Cro-Magnum man or whichever one came after that. We wouldn't be as evolved and or smart and have all these gadgets that we have 
if they didn't start intervening at that time frame. Mm. Um, you know, I still think that genetic modification is going on till this day. I mean, you see, you know, as the pieces parts and as I was growing up, you know, again, coming from a dial rotary telephone with a big long cord, if you wanted privacy, you were taking it and the cord into another room and that was about it. We didn't have computers, we didn't have cell phones, you know, our, our uh, answering machine was, you know, two big tape recorders and all this crazy stuff. Um, you know, but point being, you know, when I was a kid and was watching all these UFO sightings and these things that were going on, you see a progression of things that were actually happening to these uh, abductees. And, you know, one of the things that I found pretty curious was that, you know, first you had abductees saying they got abducted. You know, then you have abductees uh, on the women's side and men saying, you know, they were screwing with my sperm count and my eggs and uh, possibly impregnating women uh, with a hybrid child who, mm -hmm. you know, she ends up coming back and going to the doctor and the doctor says, yeah, you're pregnant. And, you, you know, these are all the signs of being pregnant, whether you had sex or not, you know, you're pregnant, you know, three or four months down the street, you know, then she gets reabducted again and the child is removed from her and, you know, taken by them. And they find like mature. blood on the sheets and stuff like that. And the woman's all sore and there's no baby. Yeah. There's a lot of reports of that. A lot. Exactly. You know, then you hear, you know, more so that a few years rolls by and then, you know, the mother's taken back to the ship to be shown her hybrid child. And you either accept your hybrid child and what's happened or you're freak, totally freaked out and they send you back and brainwash you and that's it. You forget all about it. We should never really forget all about it because somewhere in there, the truth is locked up and it'll just be a trigger keyword, just like hypnosis. And it'll come flying out of there, whether you like it or not, you're either yeah. prepared for it or you're not. But you see kind of this progression that's been going on about this hybridization of their species as they we were slowly modified in the likeness of maybe the Anunnaki style people and or the reptilians and a cross modification of maybe both of those genomes to adapt and evolve to this planet. Yeah. And also do their bidding. You know, maybe as they, the modifications went on further, you know, they doled down our senses of, of awareness so that we could be controlled better, you know, right. and they could control the energy that is us. I mean, this is, this is a whole different kind of subject really. And, you know, there's this container and then there's the energy that's you that powers the container. The container is expendable across time, across the board. You know, the energy that is you flourishes within the container until the container, you know, it, it can't support life any longer and it dies. Now, your energy doesn't die. Your energy just moves on out of here. The container itself is just, you know, the host container, you know, for you to coexist on this planet. And hopefully, or in my thinking, that it would have been harmonious with the rest of nature as time would have went on if we were left to our own devices. But we weren't. Right. We were modified. And, you know, for people to understand how the energy of you, you know, really equates to the outside world and that we're there are two different things. We are the energy that powers the container is a totally separate thing from this container and the life we live on this planet. Yeah. And you see this, I try to explain it to my wife in a way that she can understand because she's not, you know, up on all the things that I'm that I do and see. So she for her it's, you know, kind of very strange what I say. 
But I try to explain it to her like this. I mean, you know, we plant fruits and vegetables and we harvest fruits and vegetables. Everybody on the planet understands that the first flower, the first fruit from these plants is the one that's going to be the sweetest and most tastiest and the best looking, uh, the best of the best that comes off the firstborn energy of that plant. It's yeah. the first one we want to harvest because it's going to be the best. The second born and third born or the third and fourth picks or the second and third picks of these fruits and vegetables, they're not always as good. You know, they're smaller, they're runts, they're not fully developed, they're this, they're that, they're the other thing. So they're not as good as the firstborn energy of that fruit or of that flower or of that vegetable. And we are no different, you know, and the powers that be that we call the cabal and the Illuminati and for the ritualistic sick things that we look at them doing like you know taking babies and drinking their blood or doing these very sadistic and screwed up things we see it as a human in this container as a sadistic and very screwed up thing but the reality is they are harvesting the energy those firstborn energies from these most important children to keep that from being propagating, if you take that energy away from this child or away from this human container, that energy cannot propagate and grow up to be stronger and better and possibly rise up against you and gather other people to rise up against you. So therefore we take those energies out of the mix and feed off of that energy. Right. And we do it every day as humans. We feed off of the firstborn energies of many plants to gain sustenance for this container. Yeah. You know, and yet, you know, people don't really see it as like, well, you know, the cabal or the Omanati, what do you mean? They're out there harvesting energies of the firstborn. They're doing exactly that. And it's been done for thousands of years. Who do you send into battle? All these wars that are fought throughout time, who do they send? They send the, you know, 18 to 20 year old kids. The firstborn energies into battle. Let's harvest them first. Get rid of those energies so they won't fight back. Mm -hmm. And their bloodlines in the future won't fight back. And once we nip that in the bud, they're gone. And we'll deal with the second and thirds are just less offensive, less um, powerful to go against them. Yeah, they have so, this. They have this whole process and movement and system involved now to hide the true history in the past in order to keep their uh their manifest destiny intact you know their mm -hmm. right their right to the throne or their right to be in charge intact and then they use their actual knowledge of how reality works and how our how we actually interact with reality and in in nature around us and mm -hmm. in the true way and they suppress that with all these uh, manufactured foods and the way they mess with everything, our education system, our whole sense of reality, they hijack and basically put into a paradigm or a box where, like you said, if you go beyond that, it could even be that there's entities involved in hijacking our own genes and DNA to where uh, not only do they hide our ancient history from us, but they even hijack our DNA and our genes to where we can't even see reality the way that we naturally would be able to, to where certain frequencies of reality and perceptions or dimensions of what could be going on around us fall right. into a blind spot. So maybe there are like what we're perceiving as balls of light could be an entire being or entity or another that exists in another realm or reality that 
that they just keep us blind to uh, because they're able to manipulate us almost like a puppet, you know, in that way, like by right. manipulating or beaming that energy into us. Because like you said, our body's more like a vessel or like an antenna mm -hmm. and the signals that are washing through that antenna can be tricked all the time, easily. Yeah. Definitely, yeah, easily. containers, uh, definitely the, your perception is limited. Yeah, uh, we can not, we can dull down the perception levels of your you know ability to foresee or see these things all around us. And it's funny, like when you were talking about the having a dream in a lucid state. You know, yeah. very early on in my life, when I was just a young kid, I would you know have these weird dreams, and you know, unfortunately, they were always about alien craft flying around my grandmother's house, you know, in New York, and I would see these different craft, and I would be scared. I mean, I'm not gonna lie to you, I was scared. I would be hiding like in the closet or under the bed because these they were so surreal, and I would find myself literally flying, you know, like flying through the air in a dream that you can't control, and you're like. Like I said, like lucid dreaming, you're you recognize in that you are dreaming and whatever's happening in the dream, you are your subconscious is looking at it in the second person. The dream is going on and your second person subconscious is looking at it saying, hey, I recognize that this is a dream and yeah. that this is happening. And if you can keep the, the, the separation between the first level subconscious, second level subconscious to let it continue because once you actually try to access that second subconscious to say you know oh this is happening and i need to focus on it as soon as you do that you wake up and it's all over right and, um, but at a certain point in time that i my body my mind would see like you're in the dream i'm flying along and so it's just going along and i have no control over what's going to happen i'm just going for the long for the ride and one part of my brain is looking at it watching it all occur yeah uh, at one point in time another part of my brain said why watch just watch it make a turn go left yeah. go right yeah. go straight you know so i started controlling the directions that i could go in the dream and it was almost like having three parts of my head working at the same time which is kind of yeah. tough to explain there's actually the dreaming part as it's going on and then a part of my subconscious that's watching it happen and the other part of my subconscious that says let's change what's happening let's and change there, that direction and then there, this way. john there's always a fourth one too which is there's the subtle awareness that can creep in where you know that your body's like laying back in the bed Mm -hmm. asleep i've even heard myself snoring before and been like huh like and so there's all these multiple paradoxical levels of awareness that are all like working in in cohesion and synergy together all of a sudden it's Great. like a non-physical awareness as opposed to just looking through your eyes you know mm -hmm. yeah it's uh and sometimes i wonder like you know i i used to think about it like um in my brain, you know, I would see like, it's like 35 millimeter film, you know, like you're having a dream and these films are going past your eyes, you know, your subconscious brain. And I would see these movies transpiring. And then at one point in time, I would see like, you know, seven frames and then it'd be 16 blank ones and then two frames and then 17 more blank ones. So you have this like broken piece of film that yeah. has a bunch of information and a bunch of non-information missing. 
And then on the top of that, there would be another film going the opposite direction that had the same thing. A bunch of information, a bunch of blank film, a bunch of, and they're all moving at the same time. One's going that way, one's going this way, and I got one on top doing the same thing. And I'm trying to understand, I'm trying to like watch the video in my mind's eye of what does this actually mean? What is it going on here? And how do I change it? Like, okay, you got to figure out like what these actual pieces are and what pieces are missing in the middle or what from the last picture you saw to the next picture you see, what could have happened in between there. And that's when those little compartments I talked about, yeah, finding all that information and learning it to the nth degree and then having it all of a sudden, you know, a couple more pieces of the film would show up. You can start to see a bigger picture of what's actually going on. But the picture I keep seeing is uh, this picture of, like, why do I know all this information and how do you get real people to understand that they we as a collective need to bind together and start fighting and back against this oppression. Otherwise we're just doomed to continue this cycle of silliness over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> and you're doing that, John, actively now, which is amazing because like you've gone from somebody who is just out in nature, like looking for gold, looking for treasure, you know, like a lot of people just go out and they're like into hunting or camping and then they have a phenomenal encounter. They see something unexplained. They come across a mystery or they, you know, they see something in the sky on one of their trips and it unravels their life in one sense, but on the other sense, gives you a new purpose, a new direction. And one of the things I've been really impressed with you is how much your work has evolved into this, you know, working with the environment and this humanitarian cause in order mm -hmm. to as you uncover the past how can you take that in order to protect the planet and everybody for future generations which honestly is a common message in these encounters with beings in dreams beings in abduction encounters and uh different things like that is always the sense that we're ruining the planet and need to fix things so uh, before we wrap this up, we've been going a little bit over two hours. It's been such an awesome conversation. I got to have you back on here, but I want you to be able to have an opportunity here to tell everybody really quick again what you're doing uh, moving forward with your project and, and how you're trying to better the planet and help other people with uh, with your work, John. Yeah, I appreciate that. And really, I'm, I'm shocked. It's uh, two hours. I apologize. No, it's great. It's perfect. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, Treasure Quest uh, NFT, Treasure Quest Club NFT is you know really the this can it's so it's it's the way that we need to move forward to protect these treasures as they come out of the ground. Not only just monetization of gold and silver treasures, but all treasures. I mean, all of this information needs to be shared with everybody, and all treasures that come out of the ground. You know, especially on this scale, on Japanese uh, Yamashita treasure, these sites are huge. They could be a ton, they could be two tons, they could be a hundred tons, they could be a thousand tons. I mean, there is no shortage of the amount of material that could come from it, not only in the monetary aspect, but the history and the information gained along the way. I mean, all of the things that were stolen from the Chinese who stole it from all over the world at the time, statues and uh, you know, different paintings, possibly different types of, you know, that prove out different types of civilizations that were going on back in those days, 10 for 10,000 years. That's a, all important stuff that needs to be shared and viewed in a museum. You know, the antiquity side of what we're doing with that, um, 
the uh, Division of the Monuments Men um, here in the United States, and they were protecting, you know, German treasures, looking for the Nazi treasures and trying to bring them out. Uh, this group is actually cataloging uh, all the antiquities that are found around the globe and in museums and putting them to NFT and to the blockchain so that they can be protected for future generations. And we're, you know, we hope to bring every artifact that we uncover out of the ground into this position. So it's automatically in the blockchain forever and ever and ever to be found. Even if it gets stolen, it'll still have a record and still be able to be tracked out across the board and lots of people know about it. And I, it's the only way that I can see protecting these treasures as we move forward into the space. I mean, there's a bunch of people out there with tons of really awesome projects that, you know, not only will we, will we cover, you know, lost treasures per se in the monetary side, but the lost historical aspects, you know, pieces and parts of, you know, different aircraft and or beings that don't belong here and Bigfoots. And there's just no shortage of the information to be found out there. You know, the, yeah. the longer we wait, the longer we continue to do it in the aspect that it's these small confined groups and, you know, the lion's share goes to the group and nobody gets to benefit from any of the information or the treasure, it's got to stop. So, you know, using the Treasure Quest Club's NFT program and, you know, protecting these treasures and putting eyes on it and making it totally transparent to the world. And the more, the merrier, because the more people we got, it's a whole lot easier, you know, it's a whole lot harder, you know, for a government to back out of a contract that says, you know, we take 20 percent. And then right. when it comes time, you know, they say, oh, we take it all. And you're only 50 people. So what are you going to do? Fight the government? No, you're not. Uh, you could try, but it'll be a whole lot harder when there's, you know, 10,000 people or a million people watching what you're doing. And the government has to answer to a million people that are pissed off as opposed to 50. Right. Yeah, and I, you know, it, maybe they'll still steal it from us, but at least I've created awareness to uh, a million people now know that this artifact existed and we did recover it and it was stolen from us. Right. Yeah, so we've got to use these mechanisms as best we can to help not only protect them as, as far as visualization is going and the understanding that these treasures exist, but then the monetary aspect of that, we can clean a lot of oceans. We can clean a lot of carbon out of the air. We can help a lot of people get out of, you know, uh, homes that are getting blown over by typhoons. You know, we can plant a lot of cash crops for people that help them flourish into the future. I mean, what good is it? When we all go, you're not taking anything, any material item with you whatsoever. You know, so all you're going to take is all the information that you've built up inside your head and all the experiences that you have. I think those are going to go with you. And I hope so. It's really that's the only thing I do plan on taking with me. So the right. more, more experiences we can have, the better. And the more we can help people understand what, you know, being human is all about and helping people to, you know, kind of live a better life, you know, not only for our sake, for, but for everybody's sake. You know, yeah. that's really the goal. So, John, I used to do the same thing as you going out into the woods and out in the hills and saying, why, why me? Why does this happen to me? And what is my purpose? I used to go out on my balcony because I would wake up outside on my porch and in different places in my house like you. Mm -hmm. I've had strange out of body like dreams and mm -hmm. uh, paranormal type experiences like that as well. And now I'm out running around doing this full-time too, looking, trying to explore the mysteries and trying to I encounter people like you. And it's no coincidence trying to get the message out and 
you know, you've been out there asking and wondering what your purpose is. And I think you just summarized it up really well, really well. Like why me? And this message is coming through. You're helping uh, change the world and approach this whole topic in a new direction. And man, John, I hope we get to work together more in the future. I definitely want to have you back on the show and I'll hope to see you on my, some of my friends shows that have even bigger ones than me. It'd be really cool. But, uh, everybody, uh, where can everybody find you if they want to look you up? Uh, they can try us at uh, treasurequestclub.io uh, or it's treasure-quest.io at the website, uh, website, excuse me. Um, also on the Discord channel at discord.gg slash quest. And um, we have Twitter and uh, uh, all, all of it runs under Treasure Quest Club NFT. So on the Twitter, on the YouTube, uh, Instagram, I think they have TikTok and uh, Telegram. Uh, I am so new to this whole space about social media coming from the television side of it. I, before TV, I never really did a whole lot of picture taking and talking to anybody. When I got on with, with history channel, it was very uh, censored, you know, so I wasn't allowed to make posts. I wasn't allowed to anything I said, they always had something to say, like why I can't say that. So right. it just became like, you know, what's best. Don't say anything. Just say nothing. <laughs> saying right. nothing was better than putting your foot in your mouth and being scolded like a little child. So I just never did it. And now that, I, you know, my contracts are done and the, you know, unfortunately for us, I mean, I would have loved to go back to, you know, to the Philippines with the history channel and make the recoveries and do what has to be done. But COVID had dictated something else. Right. So uh, now that those contracts are over and we're, you know, we're back in the saddle again, we can go and do and, do all the things that need to get done. And I can now actually you know, put on my social butterfly wings and kind of get into the space and make people more aware of what we really stand for. It's not about, you know, I need to have treasure so I can buy a big yacht and a, and a boat and a ship and some cars and whatever. Been there, done that, got a t-shirt, old draw full of them. Those things aren't going to make you happy. There's just a short-term gratification and eventually you'll get bored with it and or uh, it, all of it is maintenance and cost money. So yeah. You got to have a place to store it. You got to have a place to put it. You got to always constantly wash it and clean all these things for what? What's the point? You know, it's a, it's not worth it. You, I feel better when I go out and help people and do nice things for people that can't do for themselves. And, you know, that's where my happiness lies. And to see this world come around full circle, uh, to use these giant treasures that we will recover uh, for the good of humanity, that's where I want to go. And I want to drag everybody along with me. So yeah. it's going to be awesome. So everybody that wants to follow along on uh, John's adventures and treasure hunts, uh, make sure and stay tuned. Go check out his website. I put it down in the description box below and you can subscribe to my channels as well along the way. Cause I might get included or invited to go along a few with John. Hopefully I'm going to cross my fingers and keep begging. Maybe I'll get to go on a trip with John and check out some of these awesome sites. That'd be really cool. Cause to me, it is a message that does need told. And, John, I appreciate you so much coming on here and taking the time to do that tonight. So thank you so much. You and, I, uh, it's been a real pleasure and a real eye-opener. And, I, you know, after watching some of your videos, I mean, you know, right away we've clicked right off the start. So, um, you know, I think there's more to share with the world and there's more adventures to be had. And I think that you'll, you and I will be out in the field somewhere someday not too, in the not-too-distant future. Definitely. We're going to do this again, John. And uh, appreciate you so much. And you have a good night, man. Okay. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. You guys Bye, take care. everybody.
Thanks, Carl. Good night.